Welcome to the Mind Your Leadership Podcast. I'm Karen Tsuk. In this podcast, I will have conversations with thought leaders, CEOs, and managers from various organizations about leading mindfully. We will learn from experienced leaders how they implement mindful leadership in the day-to-day organizational culture, and we will gain tools and skills. So stay with us. Hello. Today, I will speak with Luke Betty. Luke is a behavioral scientist and innovation expert who has helped teams and major organizations such as Nike, Intel, McDonald's, the Red Cross, and many more to navigate complex strategies, challenges that unlock growth. His consultancy, Sprint Valley, is trusted by Fortune 100 and FTSE 250 clients, as well as private equity firms to help their teams navigate complex strategies, challenges that unlock growth. Today we will speak about what is the formula? Is there a formula? And if yes, what is the formula for igniting a culture of innovation and employee-led change? And how to help teams solve novel problems? So stay with us. Luke, thank you for joining. Hey, great to be here. Been looking forward to speaking. Great. So, Luke, I like to start with a personal question and then go on to the professional ones. So, if you can share with us a highest or a lowest point of your life or career path, and what have you learned from this period? I think it's interesting. I think the high and the low, it was actually the low and then the high, and they're other sides of the hill, if you like. So, I spent the first 10 years of my career with this mental model that you get promoted, you earn more, you get promoted, you earn more without any real sense of the direction that I was actually headed. It was just a take the next step, take the next step. And I had an experience about seven years ago where I made it onto the board of a previous employer and I just hated the work. And I'd had no idea that the direction that I was moving towards was actually moving me further and further away from the things that really brought me energy. And I remember, I'm not a sports guy, but I remember one quite fierce conversation with friends where I was, and I won't swear, but I was explaining that I feel like I'm being paid to be a professional footballer and I really don't like football. It was at that moment that I remember coming home from work and, uh, really not being in a good headspace and realized that something had to change. I didn't want to be the dad that was coming home complaining about work. And I didn't want to be the husband that was, uh, you know, coming home with no energy to bring back to the family. And so I decided to step down from the board and my friends, my family, I think thought it was career suicide at that point. But in retrospect, I think it was the high at the same time, because what it forced me to do was really ask myself the question, what would you want to do in an ideal day? Are you with people? Are you making things? Are you solving problems? Are you selling? And I think that question has really changed how I feel about my work, but I've also shared that question with anybody that works with us as well. And I think now what it's crystallized for me is that I believe that my mission at least is to find a way to spend as much of my time doing the things that really bring me energy Um, so that I can bring my full self to work. And so it was a a pretty short transition, but meant I had to reskill. I'd gone from a sales-focused leadership role into more of a consulting role. 
but really I had a platform there to create what Sprint Valley is now. And now still doing a lot of the things that I disliked previously, but with a different energy and understanding and, and a different focus. So I'd say that's wow. probably the, high, the, the low and then the high. Wow. Wow. I really like this example. As you talked, I had shiver in my body because I think this is also my mission. And I think it's really important what you've done because a lot of people are sleepwalking and yeah. doing what they need to do. Yeah. and don't really pause to listen to themselves and to figure out what is the right path for them because you needed to have a lot of courage, right? To confront your peers, your maybe your wife, your parents and say, okay, I understand that you think what's the best for me, but I know better what's best for me. So you needed a lot of courage to do it. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. But I think, um, I think once you have that realization, it's not really a matter of courage. It's actually about accepting the feeling. And once you accept that that's how you're feeling, you have to change. Otherwise, you're choosing to sit in it. So I, I'm, I don't know that it felt courageous. I think it was more of a, a crystallizing moment of, no, I've, I've taken the wrong path here. And now I know I need to retrace my steps. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of ego bruising in taking what was a demotion at the time. But in retrospect, it allowed me to sort of move into a extremely creative and productive phase of my, of my life. And it was a, a big shift in my family life as well. And I think now the belief or the purpose in Sprint Valley in the business is really, I used to call it, we want to make work thrilling. I used to want this idea that work felt like a theme park and home was an oasis and I didn't connect with people as well as I'd hoped. And now what we say is, you know, the vision is that, you know, when you leave work proud, you arrive home happy. And I think that that's true. You know, I, I think when you end a day or a project and you feel like, You've impressed yourself. Your team have impressed you in where you've got to. I think you come home with energy credit, right? You kind of bounce through the door and I think it makes you a, a better partner or family member. And so that's, that's what we're hoping to create for our teams and, and for our clients as well. Amazing. I really relate to it because I really believe in energy and presence. And, you know, mm. you show up fully in your personal life, professional life. You also show up fully in your personal life, right? And everybody yeah. gain from the fact that you are in the right path for you and right, doing what you love, right? Totally. And I think, I think everybody spends most of their time in work interacting with people that are just going through the motions and it's not necessarily an expression of themselves. And yet sometimes you meet those people that clearly love what they do and it's something that's an obsession for them. It's hard for anybody else not to take energy from that as well. I think that's also about how you curate your clients to an extent, but also the, your network and the people that you, you hang around because you want to be, my dad always called it that there's, there are radiators and there are drains, right? And you want to be around the radiators that are kind of giving you stuff and try and reduce the number of people that suck your energy as much as possible. But yeah. It's also a great tip to fill yourself with good energy and let go of people that you feel drain you. Yeah. And yes, I think it's a, it's crucial and it's a, it's like a magnet, like it's working out of passion, right? When you sit with a client or a colleague or whatever that is passionate, yeah. you're connected to this passion and you're going with him. Yeah, you want more right? of it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because the, the, you know that the process you're going to go to is going to feel exciting and it's going to feel more energetic rather than work. It becomes maybe there's just a little bit of play in there. And I think that's, I think that's a good, good balance to try and strike. And another thing that you said, it resonated with me because I had a conversation yesterday with my daughter about it, or I don't, I don't remember, with my husband. And you said, you said, 
now I'm doing what I'm passionate and love. And yes, still I'm doing things that I less love to do, but I do it because I have my energy is so high so I can deal with it better. But if yeah. I'm doing something that I don't like and I need to do the stuff that I don't like, so there's no reason to do it. So there's not energy there. So I think it's a crucial point to crystallize, to say that even we are, when we are passionate and we are in the right path, there's mm-hmm. always stuff that we need to do that we prefer not to do, but we have the energy to invest in it, right? So uh, to build on that, I think there's also a piece about, I think my old mindset was you need to improve your weaknesses. And now, I mean, sure, but I think my energy is much better spent making my strengths stronger and working with other people who they take energy from the things I don't. You know, I'm not an especially detailed person. I can be if I, if I need to be. You're smiling and maybe, maybe you feel I'm the same. You. <laughs> you know, I kind of, I get a lot of energy out of ideas and possibility. You know, that's a space that, you know, I could sort of sit in forever, but not a lot will happen unless I've got people that can help me make these things real. And, and I think that was another real turning point for me in how I thought about myself and thought about work was this shift from, I've got to be good at everything to the team's got to be great at everything. And I just need to be brilliant at the bits that I'm brilliant at. There's a lovely quote of, um, only do what only you can do. And I really love that idea. It's something we share with our clients as well, in particular when it comes to things like automation. But that idea of you know, how do you help people double down on the bits of their work that they just they can bring magic to and the stuff that they don't? How do we you know, find the right people or other ways of making that work happen? That's so. a great formula for being a great leader, you know, because you bring people that complete you and then you yeah. do what you need to do and they do what they need to do and then the puzzle is... Yeah. Yeah, and I think another another big shift for me was facilitation as a skill set has kind of dominated a lot of my professional life, I'd say, over the last five or six years. And I think that's been another really big shift for me in how I think about leadership, going from you're there to have the answers versus you're there to uncover the answers, whether they whether you originate them or your team originate them or your customers originate them kind of becomes less relevant. And that's been really freeing for me as well, because I think as leaders, we're usually in situations we're not really sure what the best forward would be. And, uh, you know, if you get yourself in the trap that you need to originate the thinking on everything, well, you're only as good as yourself then, I suppose. So. Amazing. So you talk about having a formula for igniting a culture of innovation and employee-led change. So I will challenge you because... I'm curious to hear what is a formula. I don't believe in formula. I think each and every one is different. Each and every culture yeah. is different. So what do you mean by that? And you can share. Yeah, so, so you're absolutely right. Where I would sort of respectfully challenge back is that at the core, all people have followed a very similar evolutionary path. Mm-hmm. And the pressures on the way that our brain has formed have been pretty similar. We've evolved in a calorie-poor environment. There are certain things that we need to be able to you know, create change in the world. And there's a formula that sits behind behavior change that every government in the world uses in their nudge unit. So if you listeners have heard of behavioral economics or nudge theory or behavioral science, it's this idea that now over the last 10, 15 years, the science of behavior change has become quite robust. Uh, it's become quite mature. And the formula that underpins all of that is something called COMBI. And it's the idea that if you want a behavior, there are these three things that need to be in place. The person needs to have the capability to do it. They need the opportunity to do it. And they need the motivation. And if any one of those things is missing, 
then you're not going to get the behavior. And what we're doing slightly differently is taking that science of behavior change and applying it to the organizational challenge of how do you get people innovating? And when we do that, we actually won an innovation grant from the European Commission a couple of years back to research this. Mm -hmm. What we were able to uncover is that there are really these sort of six levers that as leaders you can pull to help people lean in to innovation more consistently. And so we can maybe walk through that in a little bit more detail. But at the core, that's so everybody is different, cultures are different, but the forces that act on our behavior are actually pretty well known. Not easy to navigate, but they're actually pretty well known. What are the six? Can you go through quickly the six? Of course, of course. So let's take the first one, which is around capability. So we've got two pieces of this. We need you as an individual need the skills, right? Mm -hmm. And so that might be around certain methodologies. It might be around being able to ask great questions, collect information, synthesize, come up with ideas, whatever it might be, right? So there's a skills piece that sits in that. But then there's a talent piece. So you need to be in and amongst a group where you have that balance. So you might be great at the beginning of an innovation process where we're trying to define the need or the opportunity. I might be great at the ideas stage, and that's okay. So it's about how do you build teams that complement each other so we've got a full set. So that's that first, the first two. Opportunity now is around uh, systems and support. So from a systems perspective, you need a process to follow. You need resources, you need time. And then from a support perspective, you need to have leadership and peer support that you're going to be investing some of your thinking power, your bandwidth, your time in pursuing a new challenging goal. Mm -hmm. And in terms of motivation, the two pieces there are strategy. You've got to know where am I headed and why and what's in it for me. And then you need the feedback loops to let you know, am I moving in the right direction or do I need to course correct? Mm -hmm. So we use that as a lens to try and troubleshoot. So when we come into an organization and the uh, velocity of projects is low or they're launching new products and services that customers aren't adopting or they're getting stuck in debate, we use that framework to come in and work out, okay, well, What's working in our favor right now and you know what's missing? We can kind of layer over some best practice as part of that and then help use that as a way of designing interventions to shift employee behavior. So if I hear you right, you're actually looking for the alignment between the motivations of the employees and the company's vision and what's happening, right? And you got it. The, and this circles back to your own personal story because when there's not alignment, you can't actually succeed in being in the cutting edge and crafting new products and services the client will want it because you're not in the right place exactly exactly right and so that that really simple formula and hey it is very simplified and reality is a lot more complex but i think sometimes these mental models can just give us a way to cut reality down so that it can be a little the complexity can be a little bit more manageable and we found this really valuable in helping teams zone in on some interesting opportunities to improve things Can you give us an example of a company that you work with and help them innovate and solve their own problems and at the same time enjoy the ride because you really want them to enjoy when they're sick? This is really challenging. Yeah, for sure. There's a number, but uh, one that comes to mind is is actually a law firm that we worked with here in the UK. So a top 100 law firm, really traditional industry, extremely intelligent uh, you know, the, the average IQ of this of the audience is is a little intimidating at times. Everybody really thinks that they know what's right, and uh, 
everyone likes to do things their own ways. Not a lot of standardization. Not illegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, exceptionally talented at what they do. And um, however, you know, in the legal industry, AI even three years ago was very much a today threat. What they were finding is these big companies, the bigger firms, had been investing in machine learning and AI for years, and were starting to see returns. And they were seeing that in the form of being able to automate certain parts of their process and actually start bidding for work that was in the middle bracket. They were kind of being able, they could profitably pitch for work, you know, with the new competitive sets. You've then got these mid-tier companies who are suddenly dealing with kind of uh, the bigger companies who have maybe got stronger brands and all the rest of it. And the question is, you know, how do you organize yourself to deal with that? And our whole process around driving employee-led change uses that exact formula. And so for us, it was about, first of all, getting that leadership support for why we need to do things differently. So really getting the leadership group to tell the story of where are we headed and why. Then it was about really teaching, giving, so we're getting to the capability piece, creating some skills within a core group in that business on how to innovate by collaborating with your customer or with your client. Mm -hmm. So we helped them take various pieces of their business where they were looking for operational efficiencies, whether it was you know, improving client experience, but bring their customers actually into that process. So they weren't ever changing anything that was removing value, right? And so what we worked with them on over a few months was really taking some key challenges, helping them explore possible solutions, prototyping them, getting them back in front of clients, really iterating on different approaches, and then implementing some of those, those new solutions. And their business actually increased in profitability from 9% to 18% over the next 12 months. They reduced some of their core internal processes like document production by, I think it's 69%, something like that. Uh, and we won a strategic alliance award with them. And so, but at the core behind that project was really that same formula, right? Give them the skills, get clear on the strategy, make sure there's some data coming from clients to help them course correct, give them a really good process to follow at the same time, and make sure we've got the right people together to work through things with kind of complementary problem solving style. So what I hear from you, essential in this process is the ability to, it's kind of a co-creation, but the ability to mm -hmm. really listen and let our assumption aside and really listen to what's needed in this moment, what our clients needs, what the market needs, and to listen, because we used to run with our own products and not being able to listen. And you also said it, that it was part of your process to understand that leadership is not about talking and having all the answers, but listening and Really yeah. being attentive to what's needed right now. So this, I think, is essential. In the way. Yeah. You didn't talk about it in the model, but I think it's beneath the model. It's a deeper layer that they need yeah. to... No, I agree. And hey, nobody likes change, right? People could say they like change, but they don't. It's, it's, it's a lot of extra energy and having to mentally reorganize yourself. There's a lot of impact for that stuff. And the IKEA effect, right, is really what, what's happening here, that when you build something yourself, it has higher value, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Really, what we're doing in these projects is creating the platform for employees to design the future business with customers. So it stops being this top-down, how do we mandate the shift, and which ultimately people can do the quiet quitting thing or be a, you know silent saboteurs and everything else and make things very slow. But you can just flip it and that you have the leadership say, we have a challenge. There's mm -hmm. a chasm that we need to cross and we don't know how, but we need your help to get us there. So come and help us build the bridge. And then it's up to them as individuals to you know, get out there and do it. And our job, as we see it, is we're the guide in that. We, you know, the client's the hero. We're the sidekick. We're there to bring in some process, some coaching, some thinking, some frameworks, and lots of support. 
but it's the team's outcome. It's not our, our outcome. We are the guide in that respect. That's great. And yes, I think as consultant, we also accompany them, but who needs to take the ownership? The company needs, right? The people in the company. Yeah. And you talked about self-management, actually. You say, okay, they need to manage themselves, the company, not only the CEO, but it's using also the wisdom of the crowd because today the wisdom is beyond one CEO. You can't as a CEO have all the answers. Otherwise, you will yeah. fall. No yeah. way. There's so much data, you know, all the AI that now yeah. increasing the speed of light. So it's a crucial, crucial element to use all this data and knowledge within the company and out of the company. Yeah. Sorry, as a slightly geeky side point, I think just you mentioned AI. One of the things that I'm finding really exciting about this shift at the moment, or certainly the popularization of some of these tools, is I think they add rocket fuel to this kind of process. Because one of the limitations in the way that we have worked historically has been just the number of people we can bring together to work on this kind of stuff, right? So it, result, it relies on lots of cascading. And actually, one of the things that we're seeing now with these AI tools is our ability to engage practically limitless audiences in looking for opportunity, sharing perspectives, evaluating some routes, collecting feedback from clients, and the tools to be able to synthesize and digest all of that data, I think I just think is really exciting, really, really exciting. Side point, <laughs> you mentioned AI. No, I think it's exciting because we are working in a transformative time that there's a lot of data and we need to learn how to work with it and mm-hmm. to leverage and to find, I think, how added value is humanity because as you said, all the AI tools will change us in a way, no? And I, exactly. Well, I mean, when COVID kicked in, I remember getting on calls with clients and everybody was lamenting not being in person. And we looked at it and said, well, how do we do this better than anybody else our clients is working with? And so invested in cameras and technology and everything else and saw our meetings as productions. And I think it resulted in our clients always joining our calls when being a bit more excited because they're working with people that aren't having a terrible time here. They're, they're seeing this as new and something that could be different. And I, I think it's that leaning into some of these technological shifts where you go, what could we do differently now? What could, we, what could this enable that we couldn't do previously and where is the opportunity? And whilst I think there's plenty of risk and downside at Sprint Valley, we're more interested in uncovering the opportunity, at least initially, and, and you know, see how that can create better outcomes for our team or for our clients. You know, small example would be, you know, now we can survey or bring 200 people into an online workshop, get everybody to write their biggest challenge on a board, and within five seconds, summarize it and analyze the themes across an enormous audience. You could never have done something like that before. And everybody's been heard, everybody's been contributed. So that ability to scale some of these methods, I think gets, I think gets really exciting. Amazing. And you took me to the next question. You talk about the remote teams. So why do you think some remote teams thrive and others struggle to survive? It's because of a little bit what you said right now, or you think more, more things? I, I think most people really suck at remote or at least don't think of it as a skill set to try and get right. And, you know, we spent some time over the last couple of years or certainly over COVID really trying to unpick what do the best or most successful remote teams do right. Mm-hmm. And there were these five patterns that we saw in companies like Slack or GitHub and many others that we ended up interviewing. I try and remember all five now, but broadly speaking, there were very, very good at getting everybody to make the mission personal. They would really take time to get people to articulate the goal, but from their own personal perspective. We talked about this kind of what's in it for me, right? So 
sure, growing revenue, nobody cares except for shareholders, but you know, better opportunity or improved work standards or better clients, more interesting projects or interesting things, right? So getting key teams to really get specific about what this outcome is going to mean for me. That was the first thing. The next thing was that they were exceptional at building trust remotely really, really quickly. So this formula, again, I like, I like a formula, it helps simplify things, but there's, there are these things that you know, improve trust. So one of them is, I've got to believe that you're benevolent. So I've got to believe you're not going to hurt me, right? The next is I've got to believe that you bring valuable skills to the table, you're competent. And the third thing is I've got to believe that you're going to be a good citizen of the team and that you've got integrity. And there are ways you can fast track those things show people their personal side, get them to explain you know, what they're bringing to the team, get them to express some of their shared values. And they were really, really good at doing that. And the next thing they were doing was just using tools to really make remote work better. And so tools like the online whiteboards that if people haven't played around with or use now, shift these Zoom fatigue type meetings into something Things difficult to recreate in person, actually, um, you know, become much more energetic, much more focused, much faster sessions. Yeah, and there are some other things that we can maybe touch on another time. But for me, I think that it's more people have underestimated the opportunity with remote. And whilst I think getting, in, getting together in person is incredible for relationship building, I think when it comes to getting stuff done, I think remote might have the upper hand on that. Yes, I think at the end of the day, it's finding the right balance, right? Between uh, connecting and between being productive. And again, I'm circling back and you say, actually, what I heard you say, that remote work actually increases the need to show up more fully, to create mm. connection, to create a deeper connection and to create this uh, compassion and empathy. And from this place and connect to the broader picture. And from this place of connecting as human beings, we can achieve everything. And it's even difficult to do it on Zoom. You know, it's, easier to do it face-to-face because you have more information about the body, the way the body talks. And yeah. uh, so I think it comes back today, as I see in these transformative times, that what's really needed and important in the business world, in the corporate world, is the ability to, for people to show up fully. And it means being able to say, I'm not on my right path. Maybe you have another job for me. I want to tell you a new job description because I, I had enough in this and I'm not satisfied anymore. And this requires a great communication skills, right? To communicate ah. ourselves to there, to show up fully. And from this place, we can find the right path forward for the, for the individual and for the organization, right? I agree. And I think, I think so much of that is about really conscious contracting with people about how we're going to operate together and just sort of prenups the wrong word, but it's being explicit about, you know, I'll give you an example. We, we share people when they start on a new project and a new team with us, we share the change curve. We share it with our clients as well. And the idea there is that there are these four steps in a change curve. Step one is the honeymoon. This is going to be great. It's going to be really good fun. Your motivation's sky high. Your skill level is absolutely zero, but you don't mind. And then you hit phase two where your motivation hits the floor and your skill level's still low. And you're asking yourselves questions like, do I really want to do this? Am I in the right place? Can mm-hmm. I do this? After a while, it starts picking back up again and you start becoming a little bit more confident in how to kind of work in this new project or new role and your motivation starts to climb as well. And then stage four is where, you know, you are flying solo, fully competent. You know how all the levers work and you can make things happen. And the thing that moves people through that second stage is asking questions because what happens in a new role is people start, 
They get this onslaught of information. After a while, they forget some of it. They feel embarrassed to ask. And so they struggle along without what they need. Because if I say that I didn't understand this thing now, they're going to realize I haven't understood it for three months and nobody wants to look stupid. But for us, it's about saying, listen, that dip is going to come in every project and in every role. It's going to come for the client and it's going to come for us. So let's just talk about it. And being able to sort of have that social contract where we'll raise our hand when we're having a phase two day I think allows for some of that conversation to happen and for people to be a little bit more human with each other in that. But I think it's about that, that contracting. So true. And, you know, it's a show that onboarding is the most crucial element for mm. employees to stay otherwise. So if you create this safe space that people feel comfortable to ask questions, to show that they don't know fully, so then you can engage them and really have a great path together. And if not, it can feel neglected and, you know, and I think the same is true, though, for giving people the tools to hold each other accountable. Mm-hmm. That's something that everybody forgets. But you know, we, for us, we kind of when we're launching a project, it's about saying, hey, listen, imagine that something happened in your world where you dropped the ball mm-hmm. and intentionally, your team noticing that they're worried. How do you want them to raise it with you? Mm-hmm. And just having that conversation as a team is humbling very very humbling because nobody likes to imagine that scenario but it does happen from time to time and i think if you've told me how you want to be dealt with in that scenario it's much easier for me to have the conversations that are needed if we've kind of agreed some of the format how that's going to work and everybody says the same thing be quick don't make it public you know assume that it was accidental and you know perhaps i need some help and so i think when you have that mindset and that intent of hey i'm i'm here to help but there's something we do need to talk about i think it's I think it's a really powerful thing to just set up at the beginning of a team. That's true. Putting the system in place, as you call it. <laughs> Putting this, yeah, yeah, exactly. Creating the social contract, you know? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. Right. Look, it was a great, great conversation. Before we need to wrap up, is there any question that I didn't ask you and you want to talk about? One thing that I think we have that your listeners might like is uh, there's a lot of free resources on our site about some of the tools and methods that we use. So we open source all of our methods, all of the training materials, resources that we train our teams on. 70, 80% of what we use with clients is available anyway. So, um, But if people visit sprintvalley.com, there's a bunch of really great stuff on there that uh, might spark some fresh thinking for them. Great. Thank you very much for your wisdom and all your tips and the system that you shared with us. Great. It's been great speaking. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. You're invited to subscribe to our podcast in order to know when we upload a new episode and follow us on social media. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care and bye-bye.